right, so we are here, back, once again, uh, doing a podcast together. And this week, um, I I think I put it on the Google. I break the fourth wall instantly. I put a Google Doc together um, to have, basically, ideas for episode names. I put this on last minute. I don't even know if you've seen it, but this week's episode, uh, we are the two Brexit, uh, Brexiteers, Brexiteers, um, Brexiteers? Yeah, Brexiteers. Brexiteers. I I thought about it because there's a lot of discourse when it comes to the UK scene, particularly when it comes to one man, who we'll talk about right now. Um, But also because, like, yeah, I think, like, Brexit, you know, the idea of of the United Kingdom leaving the EU kind of makes sense because me and you have left, like, the European scene overall. Um, You know, we may have not been... I don't know. I feel like me and you were probably, like, in some ways adopted into the UK scene. We have friends who are part of the European and UK scene. We've been a part of it. I think, like, we talk to people. I think that no one can, like, overlook, like, our history with giving a shit about it. We may not, like, you know, have gotten over... We, we, we both also, like, know, like, historically a lot of shit about European wrestling, too. So it's like, Right. Like, yeah, we watched stuff. all the... Yeah, World of Sports stuff, stuff that happened in Germany and all, the kinds of, and all that kinds of things. So... Like, yeah, we watched all the modern stuff, but I think me and you, for people that are not European, have some of the widest uh, grasp of the European scene. Yeah, we may have not taken any trips to Europe, or we may not, like, uh, be famous for talking about exposing your genitals for cowards on the internet, but... uh... But, you know, we are, I think, honorary members of the of the UK scene, or at least we were, but that's why it's the Brexiteers, because we're Brexiting from the UK scene. Uh, but one guy who, in some ways, has left the UK scene, he's talked about moving to different places um, outside of Europe multiple times. Maybe this time it's going to stick, um, but he does hang and, and swing the banner for the UK scene. I think the UK fans are always big fans of him and, and support him and everything that he does is Will Ospreay. Um, you know, he talked about moving to Australia at one point. I don't know what ended up happening with that. Uh, that might have been kind of easy, right? Because his um, fiance, girlfriend, whatever, uh, is a uh, a native of she's, Australia, um, or is she New Zealand? I think she's from New, Ze- New Zealand. But then we can get a, we can get into that in a little bit. But I think they're both moving to Japan right. in the next month. Exactly. That's what I'm going about. He talked about that. I think it might have been nice for him to have done that. But instead, now he's talking about moving to uh to Japan to I think he realized I think he realized it was a little hasty and a bad idea I I think Will like genuinely thought about it and then he was like eh moving to Australia just not the best move yeah it would be terrible in a lot of ways for him um Japan would be a lot more easy for him especially because a lot of his work is in Japan at this point um on top of you know so many other like kind of parts of this whole situation um so yeah, but uh, but he had a big match. He's had a big time, a lot of conversation about him that we're seeing all over the place. Um, my number one hundred greatest rest- wrestler ever, officially. So just you know, people don't forget that. You know, a lot of as, people are, as of as of twenty sixteen. Yes, people. A lot of people want to claim that they were the first people to the dance when it came to uh to Will Ospreay, but not everybody had him in their uh their top one hundred for greatest wrestler ever in two thousand sixteen. And you know what's funny is that when I listen to that, 
you even admitted back then that it was sort of strategic based off the trajectory of where guys like Jimmy Havoc or Tommy, or Tommy End or Will Ospreay would wind up in a few years. So you even did that strategically back then and really oh, planted yeah. your seeds in that one. Oh, yeah. That was 100% the point. I mean, Ospreay was number 100 specifically because I thought that he was the guy who was going to probably end up breaking out the most to where just having him in that kind of almost vanity position of number 100 is like proving a point to say like i am i i see where this is going and now a lot of people are getting on the bandwagon we'll say um appreciating him but i you know i specifically remember at the time of putting him at number 100 i remember that the first match that he had on the progress show with the the tag team match with the velocity vipers and there was something to the way that his body control the way that he moved the in ring that i was just like this guy has something that is not easy to duplicate and he'll figure everything else out but what he's able to do with the physicality is is you know one of a kind um you know and then you know as you go down the line tommy end i thought was a good kind of a good shout just because of the fact that like i knew that eventually what was going to happen is exactly what is happening that he would get scooped up by wwe he's got a good look an interesting style that he would marry selena vega i i could have predicted that in 2016 i knew that he was going to marry a hot short latino girl um and that he was going to um you know become a star based on his look and his style and everything that he had timothy thatcher i think is the one that like in the long term i think people are going to um, he's going to be basically I honestly could see him replacing like a Jim Brakes a guy who's like a little bit problematic and you're not supposed to talk about it anymore as like the yeah, that, yeah that's gonna be like a real like Tim Thatcher is like a real long term end game here right where I think like that... Os- Os- Osprey is sort of like in the Okada role where it was sort of immediate like oh yeah you can see someone being like this guy's one of the greatest wrestlers I've ever seen with uh, such a comparatively uh, small sample size and then Timothy Azure is going to be a guy, like you said, like uh, Jim Briggs or other world of sport guys like a Terry Rudge or a Zoltan Bostrick or something like that, where it's yeah. like, oh, you know what? This guy is really good. Like, fuck, Just I might have him in my 50s or 40s. Slowly something like that. bubbled up from underneath for years. People weren't really paying attention to him at the time. But if you look back on, you know, I mean, at the time when, uh, was it Fit Finley left uh, WWE and had, you know, the big time matches with Steen and... Um, and Sammy Callahan, he also, you know, under, I think, under appreciated or under thought of match. He had a fantastic match with Thatcher around the same time. And and I mentioned Sammy Callahan there at the same time. Another guy who, when he first left the Indies, had an amazing match with Thatcher that people don't really remember, you know? So it's, it is, I think Thatcher is that guy that's going to be the long view pick where it's like, He's going to end up in pe- in like a like probably a consensus right on the bubble guy between the the bottom and top fifty and uh... that that's just like you don't realize what you have until it's gone I think right because and... because because the whole discourse about Thatcher at his peak of a uh, I don't know divisiveness around 2015 2016 was that his style doesn't translate well and it kills crowds and all that stuff and I think people maybe looked too much too hard at his style and not at what he's good at and what he's great at is he's an amazing seller with fantastic facial expressions right and i think that got overclouded by the whole debate of does his style work for the indies and is he even popular as a champ or is he tanking evolve and i think eventually we're just going to get down to like oh shit timothy thatcher's one of the best sellers wrestling has ever seen yeah and and that's something i've talked about him for years but that's not the point of the conversation we're having here i guess unfortunately i would love to get into that a little bit more um 
in the future. But I think we, we don't already... know. Tw- we don't know wrestling 2010s yeah. podcast coming soon. <laughs> I feel like me and you started out our podcasting endeavors with each other talking Thatcher up quite a bit already. So we don't need to get too much into him anymore right now. But who we do need to talk about is the guy who was my number 100 greatest wrestler ever, uh, Will Ospreay, against a guy who God, I don't remember where I had him in the GWE, but I know that I probably had him maybe in the 40s to 50s i have to double check my exact placement but uh, shingo takage and how these guys basically um just demolished it um their match was i thought phenomenal i don't know did you want to get into the the kind of best of the super juniors finals kind of overall takes or how do you even want to get into this because i don't even really know what we should you know kind of do here well, the big story here is like the Osprey Shingo final, which a lot of people are hailing as a classic. And, you know, that's the sort of reactionary stuff that happens with a lot of big New Japan matches. But I do think this is one this is one that is going to have a lot of staying power and get remembered just because it was so fresh. It was a dream match and all those other aspects are going to make it stand out as the years go on. Uh, I don't know how much of Best of Super Juniors you watched, but I wanted to start off with saying... Will Ospreay had a phenomenal tournament. I'm not saying he's the wrestler of the year. I don't think he's a wrestler of the year. Uh, I might be. I might even be comfortable saying that he's like only number three or four, maybe five if I did a wrestler of the year list right now. But he had a fantastic tournament from beginning to end. Uh, some matches aren't going to hit for people the same way they hit for me. I can imagine like the Bandito and uh, El Fantasma matches maybe not being some people's thing or uh, maybe outright thinking they're bad, but I thought that he did really good with guys that I don't think are that great of wrestlers and really had guys come out there and have their best matches with him, like uh, Rocky Romero, uh, Yo, a, a, a Dookie, and all those things really coming out there having their best matches with Will Ospreay and him adapting to all those guys throughout the tournament. And... He's not the only guy that was really good. Uh, if we had did more Best of the Super Juniors watching together or planning, we would have done a more thorough breakdown. But Will isn't wasn't the only great guy there, but Will was head and shoulders, like, delivering every single night with every single opponent he got. Right. And, I mean, yeah, I watched um, a pretty solid amount of it. I kind of picked and choose Best of the Super Juniors stuff, but... The Osprey stuff became kind of the can't-miss stuff of the tournament repeatedly. And I talked about it a little bit on This Week in Wrestling where, like, we had reviewed um, kind of Best of the Super Juniors for the past couple of years. And it really slumped off to the point where we were just, like, kind of... I was just not really interested in watching much of it anymore. Um, but this year would have been a great year to have gotten back on it because it was such a it was such a good year overall. You had a lot of people delivering in positions where like uh, you may not have expected them to deliver. Well, uh, yeah, that that was a story. A lot of people stepped up. The usual usual suspects like your Will, a Shingo, those guys delivered the way you'd want them to. But then like. Rocky Romero, a guy who's been in so many best of Super Junior tournaments the last few years, just coming out and deciding, like, yeah, I'm going to really bust my ass this tournament. Like, you can't account for things like that. Right. Or another guy, similar situation, but honestly kind of complete opposite um, in other ways, uh, ELP showing up and maybe not having 
the most amazing tournament of all time, but really delivering in a way that I think that some of us may have not expected. Um, you know, just because he's not always been as solid in delivering the specific role. That we he... don't have to be nice about it. Like ELP has flat out sucked a lot of the time. Like a lot in the UK, he really hasn't improved a ton. He gets a lot of work uh, and gets pushed hard in Rev Pro. But if we're being honest with ourselves, we I don't think ever, everyone ever really thought like, man, like ELP is really earning this push here. It's just like he's a guy that they liked and. I think now when he comes into New Japan and people were skeptical and people were laughing and shrugging out the fact that he was going to be here and he was getting all this hype for his debut and we just were laughed it off and he actually comes out and does some genuinely good work for most of the tournament. Right. And and that's a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, you got guys like, you know, ELP again showing up uh, and, and delivering in a, a big-time situation here for a first-time... Um, you know, again, a, a first time, uh, first time showing in New Japan, and he actually brings it beyond what either of us probably would have expected. Um, and then, yeah, you've got guys who are, who are, you know, not new to the company, but you know, especially older people. Rocky Romero, like you said, over not even over delivering. If you, you know, this is another one. I hate to fucking be this guy, but it's just like. Yeah, like I thought that Rocky Romero was underappreciated for how good he is for a very long time, and yeah, but but it's not but it's not a testament on like Rocky's skill. It's just the sort of stuff he's given, right? Like he like he was given matches where he was or he or he um pushed for and got matches where he can go out there and actually showcase stuff. He's had really good matches before with uh guys like guys like Bobby Fish in previous tournaments where. It wasn't the most blow-away thing, but it's two Salahan veteran guys going out there and having a really solid match. And I think this was one of the first times where Rocky actually felt like a focus. And even if he wasn't the main guy, like a Shingo or a Will or even a Dragon Lee, it felt like Rocky was making the most out of his opportunities, which is really all you want from people in a round-robin tournament. Right, which is exactly... I mean, it's exactly what you want, is people who are adding in, like, some some performance stuff they're adding in like kind of some wrinkles i compared him to gato from a couple years ago when gato was like on his ring bell bullshit where it was like gato was definitely delivering really solid matches in a particular style which was like very memphisy which everyone knows is like kind of his background of like really enjoying memphis style but rocky was doing that but in more of a work rate situation but it was all the backdrop to build up to this huge final where you've got basically the guy who people look at as like you know, um, the infallible ace of the of the junior division, I guess. Not maybe not the ace of the junior division, but the top prospect of people to leave the junior division, basically, um, to to then also going against like the new outsider who's come in to basically like just insane dominance and beating yeah, un- everyone. Un- un- uh, yeah, undefeated in in block in block play, like. Undefeated that doesn't even happen before often. block play. I mean, uh huh. Undefeated, yeah, undefeated yeah. from the time he came in, but in singles competition, pretty much like really dominated that whole block. Right. So it's just like he dominates his block. He's been dominant in general. Um, he has an amazing match in the final that really helps solidify both guys. I don't know. 
you want to get into the match itself, but I would, I would say my biggest takeaway from a match that I really enjoyed between two guys who I've obviously been a huge fan of. I looked it up and I saw that I had Shingo at sixty-eight. Um, basically, he was the highest of my Dragon Gate people, aside from Shima, in my greatest. Who was he? Who, who was he? One spot above and one spot. <laughs> That's the funny now. thing is it was kind of a Dragon Gate chunk. So he was okay. Okay. And yeah. I had them all together, but it was Shima at sixty-seven, him at sixty-eight, and Naruki Doi at sixty-seven. Um, because those are kind of my, my Dragon Gate faves of all time, really. Um, and I probably could have... Oh, actually, I had um, uh, Mochi higher. Mochi was in, like, the 40s. Um, but, like, that was kind of my Dragon Gate block. And, uh, and yeah, so he was, like... To me, that's, like, kind of where he belongs. Um, as an all-time great, I think, actually, by the time... If there is another GWE, I think his... his resume has actually improved quite a bit by 2016 he hadn't even had his last kind of big time Dreamgate run um which you know he had and then obviously had the setup right because when right because when um the gwe 20 it happens in 2016 that ends around mania weekend of that year so in july that's when he has the big yamato match at kobe world which is one of the best matches of the year he has other stuff after that uh our pal simon Recently had uh, CK1 versus Shingo and T-Hawk as the number one Dragon Gate match from 2016. And I haven't seen that match since it's happened. But that's another one where Shingo, even after losing the belt, was just doing a lot of great work. Right. So, yeah. So, there's... there's I mean, there is conversation for bumping him up even higher, I think. It's honestly possible that by the time I do it again, he ends up higher than Mochizuki as, like, probably the best Dragon Gate worker ever. Um and that also has to do with his stuff outside of Dragon Gate, but, you know, still the guy coming from the Dragon system, basically. Um, and in this match, I just... The mix... What he brought to this match, I thought, in the moment as I was watching it, I really enjoyed it because it felt like something that stood out from what you kind of normally get in these settings. Um, and then looking back on it more, it was that... It was very similar to basically, like, the background of Dragon Gate style being kind of brought into a New Japan ring, which is that, like, these matches in New Japan up until this point, theoretically, the guys who are having, like, kind of the big exchanges and kind of the back and forth and everything they're doing, they're always on, like, very equal footing, um, where everything, like, it just, it comes across so bad in the mirror. And, like, the the biggest example of this that I think is, like, the most negative example is, like... um, stuff where you have like Okada versus Sonata where it's like this really terrible forced mirror action between the two where it just it feels like you really don't get either person over solidly as being like skilled in one way and you're just it almost feels forced that you're like trying to show me that this one like you know Sonata is at the same level as Okada or whatever that you're like trying to get across and in this match it what made it stand out was that it was it was very clear that and why I say it's like Dragon Gate style, it's like a, it's kind of something that you get from Shingo matches in Dragon Gate regularly, and he brought it here, is that throughout the entire, like, kind of the trade-offs of fast-paced counters and, and interactions, um, Shingo was there and able to keep up with Will, but you felt the drama intrinsically of the, of the, the trade-offs was that it, the cat and mouse of if Shingo got 
his hands on him, he would just cream Osprey. So it wasn't necessarily mm. like a lot of times when you see Osprey having big, like you think of the Ricochet matches or even stuff with like let's say like um, Kushida or Hiromu, where the stuff is like there's a lot of back and forth and it feels like oh my god they're on a tightrope, but the thing about the tightrope is that like if they fall off or something happens they're getting hit by someone who's like equal to them and like when they hit them it's just going to be like you know kind of in the middle of the road but the drama to this was that it felt like if if osprey got caught on the tightrope as he was like you know the the canary running from the, the the cat that was shingo if shingo caught him he would be fucking murdered because you just like the power and the violence and just the the visceralness of shingo comes across even as he's like running in tandem in this fast pace back and forth kind of cat and mouse game he's still it's you know it's like it's not cat and mouse it's like you know mouse and bulldog or something you know it's like a mouse the thing, and the thing about shingo the thing about shingo was that for how fast will is remember the style that shingo came up in shingo's probably about as fast as will right like, like shingo has a ton of speed going when he's coming off the ropes so while theoretically, you know, if we're, going, if we're going with the story of Shingo having the power advantage and it being over for Will, if Shingo really got his hands on him, that is because Shingo was still so strong while carrying that kind of speed, and Will has to rely on that athleticism. So yeah. I really like I really like how you're pointing it out. There. Yeah, and that that really helped bring a lot of of weight and gravity to the match. It's that like Shingo is keeping up with him, of course, and then those moments where Shingo you know is caught off guard and the facials where you catch him it's there's there's just danger you know it's 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 like galactus it's like he's all knowing like you may have one upped him for a second by you know being a little bit faster than him but he knows that the second he catches you you're done and there's just like something to that the the gravitas of that that really adds to it um there's you know i heard people talking about this that's one thing that i really appreciated and i think it's underlooked when it comes to being someone who works on camera like someone who's on TV or whatever is that Shingo people talk about being professional being in position what he did with it was really good when it came to that was that he I don't know how the fuck this is done but it's just I guess it comes from years of being really just like you know thoughtful and working really hard at understanding how to work the cameras in 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 these settings um is that like he was able to sell and then be in situations especially with like the super os cutter off the top where it's like he seems out of place. He's doing the wobble leg selling, but then and then and then and the next thing you know, he's like in perfect position. Osprey catches him like right. as well as he as well as he possibly could. But not even just that he's in position, but that you don't really see it. It's the magic of television yeah. wrestling that he he makes the magic happen when it's not on when he's not on camera, which is like really impressive. And again, it's like this 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 like sixth sense of like knowing when the camera's on you. Not even just knowing how to work to a camera, but knowing how to work when the camera's not on you. So that he gets into position and it's not obvious because you didn't even see it on screen when it happened. But then you cut back and he's in the perfect position. Like, that kind of stuff is just, like, insanely impressive. Where Again, where I talk about that Shingo... I mean, I love Shima and I think that Shima should be Hall of Fame wrestler. I think that, like, when it comes down to it and this, like, I may be caught up in the moment, like... I think when it comes to Dragon Gate workers, like, Dragon System workers, like... Shingo might be the best ever. Um, and, like, I understand that that might be blasphemous to a lot of, like, Dragon Gate fans because it's kind of hard to, like, look over, like, you know, Mochizuki, Shima, um, even Dragon Kid, I think, gets some love that people, like, don't... But, like, Shingo, 
I don't know. And I think that this run outside of Dragon Gate, and if he becomes as big as he can in New Japan, I think then we can get to a point where like it doesn't sound crazy. But I think even right now, like there is kind of an argument for like the best in-ring worker, and not even just when it comes to physicality, but like every part of being a professional wrestler. Shingo is like probably the best Dragon Gate or Dragon System wrestler that's ever happened. Like he's just he's amazing. With this match here, I, it really did make me happy to see Shingo just thrive the way you know he can. Because I think for a lot of people, we always said we always thought that the person that would be able to translate the most to leave to leaving Dragon Gate and popping up in another company was Shingo. And I remember at the time when Shingo left, a lot of people were disappointed. They wanted him to go work all the other smaller. Uh, companies in Japan a lot of people wanted him in all Japan because he had just had a really fun Champions Carnival run which I get and I did enjoy him a lot there but seeing him in this match with Osprey and then seeing him go out there a couple days later and beat Kojima really shows you what they think of Shingo and maybe what the plans always were for Shingo I think it's easy to forget that Hiromu Takahashi breaking his neck changed a lot of things because when, when does he break his neck? In July, September? Um, fuck, uh, when, I should when, know when, this because I was at the show. <laughs> it, I think it was September, yeah. Okay, and Shingo comes in and Shingo comes in, in October. So, I can only imagine how, how they were scrambling behind the scenes with Hiromu breaking his neck and having Shingo come in. So seeing him kind of be able to play this uh, middle ground, which, I th- which is something we're going to talk about here with guys that are going to be able to seamlessly go between junior, go between heavyweight, maybe move up to heavyweight and things like that. I think this final was r- really all about establishing Shingo as Shingo can hang with just about anybody. And I love the match. Actually, when I first watched it, I think it was a little distracted. So I didn't fully appreciate the match the first time I watched it. But the second go around, I really loved it. Really loved the pacing. It didn't feel as long as it actually was. I think it went about 33 minutes, 35 minutes. And I didn't really feel it up until uh, we get that first, uh, I don't know if it was the first ice cutter, but we get the ice cutter on the apron. And that's when I started to feel like, oh shit, like they've been going on for a while. They should be starting to get down to the closing stretch. But up until that point, I really loved how Shingo was tossing around and bullying Will. Will's become a really great striker. That's something that I've harped on for a couple of years now. But even with Will's uh, very much improved striking game, he's no match for Shingo when Shingo was chopping him and uh, doing his uh, jab and his hook and all that stuff. But something that I really liked about really liked about this match too is this match is one of those ones that really proves the worth of saving up certain moves for the biggest occasion possible and. One of them is Will Ospreay's elbow, the elbow to the back of the head that he calls the Hidden Blade, which is a terrible fucking name still. But he hasn't used the Hidden Blade since he uh, knocked out a Bushi with it at Wrestle Kingdom. And Shingo hasn't been using all of his uh, finish variations. He hasn't been using the Made in Japan variation since he's since he's come to New Japan. He's been saving it up for a big spot. And seeing the reactions that 
those spots got during this match proves the worth of saving those things. And that's like something that everyone can understand. That's basic wrestling one-on-one stuff. But it's something that I really enjoy because we don't get it all the time in wrestling. So despite all the hard-hitting stuff and Shingo's crazy-ass tope and all these great sequences and them hitting each other really hard and the selling from Will down the stretch and the selling from Shingo down the stretch, while they both were fantastic, something that I really enjoyed the most was using the biggest moves for the biggest occasions. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a great takeaway. And the Made in Japan obviously was a huge kind of, you know, kind of shining aspect of that. Um, The Super Oz Cutter, the Hidden Blade, um, everything that was, that was kind of executed here um, was done to major effect in a setting that does create kind of bigger drama moving forward. You talked about kind of, or you mentioned, you know, Shingo. Uh, getting the big win moving forward from here to uh, against uh, Kojima just moments later, uh, or not moments later, but like you know, a day or two later. Um, oh, before before we get before we get into that, I think we should talk about uh, maybe the reaction that we that that some of us saw to Osprey winning the final. Right, and so if I picked. Going in to the final and my pick throughout the throughout the tournament, my pick was Shingo. And I thought that Shingo made sense and would have been a good choice at the time. And when Will won, I was a little shocked. But then you think about Will Ospreay's year. Will Ospreay, like, clearly, convincingly beat Kota Ibushi at Wrestle Kingdom who was not, who was uh as of right now the former Intercontinental Champion, but someone that was Intercontinental Champion and won that belt in Madison Square Garden. Clear, decisive win over Kota Ibushi. Goes in and has a New Japan Cup run where he goes over guys like Bad Luck Fale and Lance Archer and then has a really good match with Kazuchika Okada. Has a match with Jeff has a match with Jeff Cobb for the never for the never open never open weight belt at Madison Square Garden. And all this stuff and has the, has the best of Super Juniors run and then comes in and wins here. Losing to Will Ospreay isn't the worst thing that could have happened there because he's losing to someone that's been super super highly pushed and super protected and put on the same level as heavyweight stars in the company. And I think a lot of it does come down to not liking Ospreay, which is something that we really don't have to talk about because, look, if we don't like him, you don't like him. That's not much of a discussion. But I think people took not liking Osprey into it being like, oh, how could you have Shingo lose here? Like, Shingo lost to someone that's really hardly put, like, really highly pushed. It wasn't a big deal for him. And honestly, him going out there and having what some people are going to call a classic of a final was the best thing that happens here. Because what is New Japan? New Japan is the great match factory. New Japan is everything where... Uh, the best of the best is going to get rated super highly and get praised by Meltzer and all the other New Japan fanboys and all that stuff. And it also gets them over with the native, native audience. Those, those kind of matches work. They help get Kenny Omega over. Like those, like those things really do make you a star. And that was the perfect thing to help Shingo here. And I think the, another reality is Will is, he's not yet, but he's going to be the top, uh, 
foreign face in the company. I think they have what they have in Jay White. Nothing they're going to keep Jay White as a heel for the for the foreseeable future. That's sort of the counter to Okada and Tana and Naito and all those things. And I think Will Ospreay is going to be the top gaijin face they have. And if you look at it, they've been building him that way for the last year and some change. Look at all the opportunities they've given him. Look at all the spotlights he's been given. And right now, like he's taking full advantage of it. And we've seen Will Ospreay from the beginning. And he feels like as big a star as anyone in the world right now. Am I crazy for saying that? No, I honestly think of him. I was talking about it, but I think of him. He's probably the biggest UK star that exists um, in wrestling. I think he's in the top of all stars, like honestly, um, in wrestling right now. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, he feels like probably. And, and like, and I know people don't like it, but. Will Will's over as fuck in Japan, right? I know people like I know people like to think of it as they're only pu- they're pushing him because he's a white guy and they have all these they love the foreigners and all that stuff and there's a lot there's a lot of proof as to where when some foreigners come over that they they're, they're not getting that much of a reaction. That's not Will. Will has really gotten over in the last year or so. And a big so you part can't of that even is, play that is building himself up. And being a guy mm-hmm. that they they respect as like not coming in and just being treated as a big time star, but someone who right. they you know similar to Juice Robinson like in the right and I, and, yeah. I, and it goes back to when Will first came in in 2016 and you remember this when Will first came in and he gets the Kushida match everyone's like oh my god they're gonna have Will Osprey come in and win the Junior Belt he loses to Kushida at Evasion Attack go to Best of the Super Juniors when's Best of the Super Juniors oh my god he's gonna beat Kushida they keep pushing all the white guys. And then he goes and loses to Kushida again at Dominion. And I think it took a while for people to accept that Will Ospreay was actually here for the long haul. They actually have plans for him. They weren't going to come in there and hot shot a belt on him like a guy like John Moxley. So I think it took some time for a lot of the foreign fan base and native fan base to really see what the game was here with Will. But I think once they realized that Will really does believe in the company, Will wants to be in this company for... A long time they started to embrace him and it's gotten to a point where if you watch these will matches they're they're cheering for will this isn't a thing where it's a hot match and a hot crowd but they're cheering for the other guy these crowds are cheering for will osprey and i think that shows you just how far this guy has come yeah and and it's impressive from when he first showed up i think i think that his first match and and you know we can give big ups to uh to Chris Travis, his first match with the pink tights, um, intentionally kind of representing for Tra- Chris Travis, who had who had passed away recently at that time. Um, but uh, but you know, even in that moment, at that time, it felt yeah, it felt like you know, who is this guy? What's you know, what's the? But the crowd fucking loved him. Like, I feel like it would have been pretty easy for the crowd to have shit on him, but I felt like he got over in that first match instantly and then has shown them ever since that he's, like, willing to work super hard and he's willing, you know what I mean? He's putting everything that he can on the line to, like, make the matches as good as possible. And just, like, everything that he does, I don't think that there's much of an argument to say that he hasn't been, like, a really, you know, like, solidly built... um, solidly built star in the company to where like people are actually authentically behind him even in the Japanese crowd so 
Yeah, it's just like moving forward, moving on from here. He's a guy who feels like there's no question to say that like the sky's the limit for him in New Japan. I don't think that they necessarily can like you know say that he's not going to be a top level star in the company um, moving forward. Um, so yeah, I just I I, I yeah I don't uh, I don't necessarily know you know what the plan would be with them or you know what they have for him moving forward um but it does feel like he's he's possibly going to be not only is he already probably the biggest one of the biggest stars in uh in the world but that he can be like the the, the he, i think he can be he can be the biggest star in the world yeah and that's like kind of the next step but will i think I wouldn't I, I, like obviously I'm not saying he should win G1 next year but I think the next step would give him a really high profile G1 match like something on the opening night with a big name or give him one of the block deciders something but you should give Will a really big G1 match next year right just to keep just to keep going with really organically making him feel like a top guy and getting him more over and putting him in more of these positions we just talked about how clearly and decisively he beat Kota Ibushi at Wrestle Kingdom. Imagine him going out there and being able to have a similar match with a not with a Naito, a Tanahashi, another Okada match, another Ibushi match, something like an Ishii match for all the, for for all that. Even if Ishii isn't in, those upper, in that upper echelon of high, of super push guys, something that the fans would really really get into in. I don't think he'll be in it this year. That's something that we can all, we, we, we can get to now after moving on from Will. I don't think he'll be in it this year, but I think for sure he should get some high profile G one stuff next year. Yeah, and I think that I think that that's uh, definitely the case. Like I think that he should be in the conversation next year for being a, a you know a, yeah exactly like a, a top level guy. I think he should. Pr- I don't know. I feel like he probably should be in the G1 this year, but it feels like now that he has the, you know, the the title and won Super Juniors right now and I feel like they've teased that concept for a long time but never really followed through that like the, you know, the top junior would be in the G1 that it would almost kind of not make sense for them to finally do it here with uh with Osprey. Um cuz it really felt like and, and, Go ahead. And, 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 and at least for me it's not even that. It's like it's crowded already. Like for the people that would be that would not be in the G one again this year, off the off the bat it would be Kenny Omega probably not being in it and Adam Page not being in it. That opens up a couple of spots and a couple of those and, and three spots that well, I think three, maybe four, have already been filled up by the likes of John Moxley, Shingo Takagi and uh and Kenta. So when you look at three new additions already, possibly a fourth in Jeff Cobb, uh, when you, God, I hate to say it, he, he just lost the belt, so maybe not, but Taichi could be in the G1 too. So if you're looking at like five new people entering the G1 this year, then it really isn't room for Will. Right, which feels wrong when you talk about some of the people that you just mentioned, especially someone like Shingo, which I hate to even bring up, but like, 
I don't know if I put Shingo in the G1 over Will right now, if I'm them, but it does probably make the most sense that they that that's what will happen. But, uh, but yeah. I, you, I, I, it doesn't bother me because I think they did enough of presenting Will and Shingo on the same level. I think you, I think Will has been pushed super hard and Will has had clear, decisive wins over heavyweights that when you go out there and you have Shingo go out there and be, be as competitive as he was with Will, that it gives him that sort of credibility. And we should, we would be remiss if we didn't act like Shingo wasn't already a big star in Dragon Gate. It's not like he needed more credibility. He needed to come in and establish himself in New Japan, but people know who Shingo is. People react whenever they see him. People react whenever he grabs, he grabs a microphone. They have they know very well who Shingo Takagi is, and I think he just needed this little this run to really establish what he was going to be in New Japan. And when he beat Kojima, it didn't feel out of place. Right. Now, when we, I guess what we can do a little bit more in Def G1 stuff in the future, but just to do something a little bit more fun, I want to know your top three dream Shingo matches in the G1. Um, ooh. Well, we already got the Kojima match. That would probably be in the conversation. Um, hmm. Probably, I would say... A match with Naito just because of their history training with Animal Hamaguchi. Um, mm. I would like to see them go at it. Um, with the, also the background knowing about like the Naito Evil match um, and how good that was in the G1 a couple years ago and having something very similar with them both being in LIJ and then also like with the real history of their training with each other background. I think they could have an mm. even better version of that with the drama and, and everything. So that would probably be my number one, Naito Shingo, especially because it is like a, a dream situation because it's two guys who aren't going to wrestle each other otherwise because they're in the same kind of unit. Um, then next would probably be like... Uh, ooh. Um, maybe something like Juice, honestly. Um, mm. and I think that people would overlook that, but I think that someone who he can bully and beat the shit out of is going to be better than... You know, something like a match against Evil or Ishii that I think other people would be more excited about because of the fact that, uh, you know, people want to see two, like, beasts. But I always like, I think that the styles make fights kind of background on looking at wrestling is what I enjoy. So the idea of, of two guys who can kind of counteract each other in that way would probably be the second match that would be on my dream list. And then, I mean, number three, the thing is, is that it's iffy. You know, if he goes into it... Um, or not, but like Chris Jericho, which I think that maybe not be appreciated by a lot of people, but I think that uh, Shingo and Chris Jericho could be a lot of fun just with the way that Chris Jericho works really smart, the way that Shingo I think works really smart. Um, I think that those two guys could come up with something really special, similar to think about it on paper, like similar to something like the Suzuki uh, AJ Styles match from a couple of years ago that everyone kind of I don't I think on paper no one was like thinking of it as possible match of the year and then at the end of it i think a lot of people had it as their match of the year that year i think that this is something with two professionals who are just so fucking good and have so much history built up behind them that when they interact with each other i think it could be something special so i mean i guess i'll turn around and ask you the same question if you were going to do kind of your top three dream shingo matches for g1 what is it so 
off the top, it's I really want Shingo versus Ibushi, and I really want Shingo versus Okada, just because well Shingo versus Ibushi. Imagine Ibushi bumping all over the place for Shingo's lariats and the way Ibushi would be taking those uh Death Valley drivers and Made in Japan's and Last Falconry just neck first and the way he would die for those moves. So Shingo versus Ibushi is one. And then Shingo versus Okada, just because I think those two are really just masters of the, of the finishing stretch in a wrestling match. Uh, a lot of people would probably call Okada the best ever at it. And I'm not sure I disagree, but I also don't think that Shingo is that far off from being one of the best at it. Uh, frankly, a lot of Dragon Gate guys are really underrated at that aspect of wrestling, but that's another discussion. But two, I think, all-time great finishing stretch guys going at it. That really interests me. And third, I I thought I wanted Shingo versus Ishii, but then I think about how I'm really not a big fan of like the Goto versus Ishii matches, and that might and that might be in a similar vein. So I'm gonna go ahead and follow your lead here, and I think I want to see Shingo versus Juice to get a good old fashioned heel face gritty beatdown match in there. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, probably the most exciting, for me at least, you know, like, that would be the most exciting matchup uh, when it comes to that, like, underdog seller, outside of someone like Osprey, who is questionable if they'll end up, you know, in the tournament, basically. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that would be kind of uh, kind of my, my, uh, my thing with that. Yeah. Um, what do you think about Moxley? Do you think Moxley ends up in the G1? And do you think that that's something that would be interesting? I'm not sure if you watched Dominion, but I think he, I think he is. He, he announced yeah, yeah. that he wants he, that he wants in it. So right. if I had to pick a Mox match I wanted to watch, hmm, I think I'm going to go Mox Ishii. Okay. Yeah, I think it would be Mox Ishii just because Moxley has been doing this really aggressive and nasty character that really is in control in his matches. And I think that blends blends nicely with Ishii and his underdog selling. So I think Mox versus Ishii would be the main one. But I can't see... I, a lot of these things with Mox aren't dream matches. They're just sort of like real weird like huh like i wonder how this would look so i can't say i'm looking forward to a lot of these matches either like i really want to know what mox versus naito looks like like i'd I'd be really interested in seeing what mox versus jeff cobb looks like and all those kind of things so i don't know but there's intrigue and sort of like a will it be good will it be like horrifically bad kind of way but the only one I'm thinking, like, yeah, that would be great as Ishii. I would be interested for Mox versus Okada, just to see Okada. That's like kind of more of the on the conversation about talking about what can Okada do, kind of thing, um, in that setting against someone who doesn't fit necessarily a style that he necessarily works very often against. So that would kind of be my my kind of idea there. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I think that it's all very interesting. So I guess next, do you want to kind of transition over into 
maybe talking about uh, the Tournament of Survival from GCW. I guess you didn't really watch the show. I didn't. I yeah. I didn't. I didn't watch it. I didn't get around to it. I think uh, the final being uh, pretty disappointing or be, or becoming disappointing because of G Raver getting injured threw me off from watching the show, but I'm still going to watch it because Tournament Survival is usually the best tournament they run. Yeah, and it was good. Um, there was definitely some very interesting kind of takeaways from the show, I would say, and the way that stuff was set up. It really sucks the way that the final panned out just because it had built up to being so good at that point. Um, I will say that... It, like, looks like the, it, looks, it looks like they had some wicked stuff that they were going to use... And then didn't get a chance to. Yeah, and and that's probably one of the like kind of worst parts about it, honestly, um, is that you just didn't ever get um, anything um, like that really kind of uh, kind of didn't uh, didn't really get a chance to like go over the top with anything um, to like like everything just didn't really especially in the final didn't really get a chance to like deliver as much as you would want um and asami kodaka i think was probably the most disappointing thing on it it was interesting because the i think last year i don't even know if that was the nick gage invitational last year or if it was the tournament i think it was the i think it was the nick gage invitational yeah last year in the nick gage invitational kodaka seemed really fired up and in it um, and I think that part of that was probably having Takeda there, um, someone who he like gets along with, and and I don't know his background necessarily with with the other you know Japanese talent that were here um, on this show, but it did feel like he, I won't say that he phoned it in, but it really felt like the stereotypical not that good kind of Kodaka death matches that you'll see some from time to time that are like pretty lazy in in Big Japan um, comparatively. So, yeah, there was kind of, there was kind of that, um, that was a, a bummer, especially because one of his matches was against Alex Cologne, who was realistically the star of the tournament, has been the star of Deathmatch Wrestling recently. He's really having a career renaissance overall when it comes to, uh, to wrestling, Deathmatch Wrestling especially, um. I liked some of the stuff that they played with. I thought that they did a really good job in the first round playing off of kind of, you know, people like G like G Raver beating Nick Gage in the first match. I thought was a really cool way to go with that, especially because this was this was really the epitome of it's funny because it's, you know, it's Nick Gage really doing I wouldn't say I've kind of compared Nick Gage to like a deathmatch version of Rob Van Dam now. Um, in that like he hits his spots and then plays to the crowd constantly like that's all he does in his matches and like you could almost I could see other people saying like well if you think that Kodaka is boring and bad because like all of his stuff seems very like you know paint by numbers and predictable with the style that he works with not a lot of passion um, wouldn't you get the same from like Nick Gage and it's really kind of the opposite where it's like Nick Gage's stuff is like all passion um, and like a lot of fire and heat and the crowd getting into it so I thought that was a great hot opener um, I thought they did a good job playing off of that. And then, like, Vite in the next match with Kodaka, another one where it felt like, you know, the underdog could win. After you just saw a big upset, you could see another one here. I thought that was good. Then you get another big upset in the opening round with Jimmy Lloyd and um, 
the great Sasuke. I thought that was good. And then you get Cologne and, and Sakuda, who I thought that they really did a great job. I mean, honestly, Sakuda versus Cologne was probably the best match in the tournament, if I'm, like, perfectly honest. Um, just with the way that they worked around the gimmicks and built to making the stuff feel important. Um, and just everything about it. So it was just, it was a really good mix in the opening round. They had a non-tournament kind of clusterfuck match that included Joshua Bishop and, and Matthew Justice. That was really good. KTB felt like a star here for sure. Obviously. That, that, that KTB spot, uh, with the follow-away, with the follow-away yes, slam. And the two doors. Combination from, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that went around and. It sucks that that sort of got overshadowed by Jimmy Lloyd somehow getting punctured by scissors again. And, and intentionally. <laughs> I think he's doing it intentionally at this point. But yeah. Oh, that was intentional? It feels like it. It feels like he has to be trying to do it at this point. I mean, two times in a row? Like, I don't know. Okay, so like, when it happened the first time, it looked like a genuine accident. Oh, because yeah. like, one, like it went through, like, like you saw like how freaked out he was and how scared he was when it happened. And I saw the picture of the second time with the scissors stuck in him. Those scissors were deep in there. Yeah. So that that I was a little, I was a little concerned there because that was a lot different than what had happened the first time, and they just sort of popped out. That was like stuck in him. Well, that's why I almost think it was intentional, right? Because it's like when it happens mm. on accident, it just kind of is there, and it's not really a big thing. But then when you're like you like you like you, like you yank it out, yeah. But when you're setting it up, sometimes you like go over the top to make sure that it happens. You're gonna like force it to go a little bit deeper. You know what I mean? You milk, like, milk, yeah. milk the reaction a little bit. Yeah. So it's just like ugh. Yeah. But it, it's it's nasty. I hope he isn't doing it on purpose and I hope he doesn't continue to try to do it even more that would be that would be like an all time dumb spot I really oh, yeah. hope he doesn't to have that like it. to like, be like his version of the um uh oh I can't think of his name confederate currency Chris Hamrick like his version of the Hamrick bump is getting scissors jammed in his neck is just a bad a bad move um but yeah Kate... oh, I, I, I just have a question for you though okay so is, is Asami Kodaka bad <sighs> No. In general, is he bad? Is he bad now? Yes. Has he been okay? I was say, has he, he been bad like the last is like now few years? Bad. Yes. Okay. I would not say that overall. I couldn't tell you that his entire career he's always been bad, because there was a time when he was good and and had charisma, and was able to like work and and he can also still have like solid like just regular wrestling matches, especially tag team matches. Um, I really like his. I actually like his regular wrestling matches more than his death matches at this point. Yeah, I think his death matches are so fucking boring. I think I don't know if I don't. I don't know if it's just me, but I like like the um, Takeda Kadaka match that people went crazy for last year. I thought that was fucking boring, man. Right, <laughs> and I can see that. I can see that, and I think that the only reason why that worked for me was more was more um, Takeda than him for sure. And I liked that match. I wouldn't have it as like even my probably my best death match of last year. If I'm being perfectly oh, not honest. even close because Kasai versus Takeda. Happened. Yeah, like, well, like, yeah no, exactly. Like those aren't even in the same realm. But, um, but yeah, I think that I think that Kodaka is like Jeff Hardy in that, like, I think he's a good gimmick match worker, but he's not a, necessarily a good death match worker. Um, so I think that like stuff like ladder matches and stuff where he can work around gimmicks and make some drama out of it. He historically, and this is again historically had good showings in those regards where it's ostensibly a regular wrestling match with a gimmick as opposed to a death match um, is where he always shined. But I just think that now I think that he's probably in 2019 is just bad. And probably honestly, you could argue that like for most of 2018, he was also bad. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, I, I, I think that that's not, you know, a, a terrible statement to make. So yeah, I think that the, the, probably the biggest travesty of the show is having Kodaka have two matches here. Honestly, I think that you could have <laughs> terrible decision. Yeah. You could have just had him have one big match and put one of your guys over early on. Probably you could have opened up with the Cologne Kodaka match in the opening round. And then that way you could have built to something better in the second round for Cologne. Um, and then, yeah, and then maybe you could have built... So, yeah, the thing that sucks is that I I think Tournament of Survival has been great for the past few years, for sure. This year was definitely down. Um, and I think that part of it that sucks about it is that they made some big, risky moves or choices you, you know, in their you booking. Know what I, you know what? I don't I don't want to say this because, I don't know. I guess like, I, got, I got sort of close to this when, we did, when I did the uh, Always Barry Tanners. But... I feel like the deathmatch tournaments that GCW is running, I I haven't liked them a lot since uh, uh, the which one, the tournament tournament survival where Cyclope wins. No, um, oh. I'm talking about as a whole as a whole tournament. I haven't really liked it that much since the second gauge Tremont. Okay. And I don't know what it is. I think maybe because I feel like maybe that. Deathmatch wrestling as a genre maybe peaked for the, maybe peaked for the next ten years after Gage Tremont two that everything that American indie wrestling is doing I mean American Deathmatch indie wrestling is doing isn't hitting that same note for me but I'm watching these shows and since then without whatever Deathmatch show they run I feel like I've been pretty underwhelmed yeah I can see that for me I think it would probably be and it's probably like one or two shows later but it would. It would be the year uh, that Cyclope won. I thought that the Cyclope tournament survival victory was like the the peak and the end of. And then since then, the the kind of American deathmatch, especially tournaments, have like fallen off. I think it's something too that we've talked about multiple times. It's it's funny because it also applies to like shoot style, where I think that primarily people are used to the concept of deathmatch and shoot style being presented in these tournaments settings by themselves. But like they would honestly be better if they were like part of a bigger show that had other styles of matches also on the show um mm. and i think the deathmatch in general is, is something that like when you get like a non-tournament awesome deathmatch on like a best of the best show on a czw or something like that's i think the the best case scenario for it or like you know no rope barbed wire uh main event to like beyond wrestling you know what i mean like new year's eve show between janella and star like that's that's where you want the deathmatch kind of thing to be is like the either the big main event or like a special freak show attraction on an ostensibly otherwise normal show. But instead you get this where you get like super desensitized by a lot of deathmatch. And then what really fucking sucks here again, and it, it's, you know, it's, they caught a bad break with G Raver getting injured because that really fucked up the, the everything about the show. The finish, the, the end of the show just became such a clusterfuck of bullshit and that's part of it too is that you know deathmatch shows always a lot of times the companies are promoted with like this edict of being kind of like you know anti-authority punk rock so it's just like whatever happens happens um so they didn't ever make it clear what the fuck was going on the commentary didn't know what was going on the wrestlers in the ring didn't seem to know what was going on you know they didn't make an announcement to say why the fuck slack is now just in this match you know so like it did become like very like just muddled and, and shitty because they are like oh whatever whatever can happen on the fly it doesn't matter but it's like it does kind of fuck with the the intrinsic like enjoyment of a tournament match to just have it fall apart that way 
um, randomly. And it really sucks for Cologne because it felt like this should have been a big crowning moment for Cologne to get the big win of this tournament after having a career year for him. And then instead it's kind of like sullied by the fact that the, the finish and the, and the finals just felt like such a fucking waste. So it was a bummer. Um, that's kind of my one man review on a show that you haven't watched, but, uh, let's talk about it. You know, maybe the other side of it, not necessarily because I did watch it, but, uh, but you know, you maybe have more to say about it, but the NXT takeover 25 takeover NXT takeover. This city is too small for us to mention. Um, <laughs> opens up with with that really that really was it though. oh yeah no 100 percent, and it's just fucking sad opens up with probably the best nxt takeover match in years with a uh, riddle and strong two guys who jesus christ i don't think i don't think either me or you necessarily have like a large amount of love for either one of these guys on a personal level um and then maybe as wrestlers i think we both have like waxed and waned on how good they are um but in the ring together it's fucking magic these guys have, have had a few matches with each other before that are fantastic um these guys have great chemistry with each other and they always deliver in situations like this but yeah i mean to me i could i can't imagine saying that this is not in your conversation for best matches on a takeover ever like these guys fucking killed it everything that they do oh, looks yeah, believable be, everything yeah. is fucking just back and forth is done super well this feels like two apex alpha males at the peak of their you know at their physical prime just going at it in like unworldly next level kind of gladiator fucking bullshit going on here uh so the last takeover i think takeover new york where it was riddle versus dream i was sitting there like slack jawed because i thought it was i thought it was the best matt riddle i've ever seen and i've seen uh (laughs) well maybe most of matt riddle's career and sitting here watching I'm like holy shit like this guy looks like the best wrestler in the world and he's been really good in NXT like the bits that we've got of him in NXT whether it was the Ono match on TakeOver the uh, Gulak match on NXT TV the um, Dream match at TakeOver New York he's looked like the best wrestler in the world and then he comes in here versus Roddy and you expect another great match because they're great wrestlers but then Riddle just is next level amazing again because he's sitting there selling his back so well. Even when he's on offense, Roddy's so vicious, and Riddle has become a really awesome, sympathetic babyface in this company, and it's translated so well for this guy. He's able to do pretty much everything that he was doing on the indies. Is that sometimes he's super dominant and mean and dismissive, like he is in that dream match. And then sometimes he's the ultimate underdog fighting fighting from underneath babyface that has tremendous offense and still sells his ass off. And it got a little kick out heavy, which I think is some, some people might take issue with. I don't really care that much about stuff being kicked out of. I thought this match ruled. I thought the selling was great. The offense was great. And one of the best openers I've, I've seen in a while. Like Roddy and Matt are awesome. And I think Riddle has really shown that in WWE, the guy still really has like an unlimited ceiling, and it's gonna suck when he goes to the main roster, and it just all that magic is gone. But I like the fact that in NXT, it's he still has kept that same aura. Yeah, and I think an interesting part about Riddle is that I think that to a lot of people, he's seen as almost like a throwback esque wrestler. Um, you know, with the comparisons to the Von Erichs in general, and then just in general, he is kind of a comes across a little bit old school in a certain way but it's funny because i think 
old school, if you compared him to any other period in time, he wouldn't fit in the WWE the way that he does now. Because WWE's like kind of policy on where they like what they do with like workers, in ring wrestlers, has changed so much. Where being as good in ring as as Riddle is now um, actually matters, you know. And then he also does have that charisma and that star power. So it's funny. It's just he feels like a throwback, but he also feels like current he feels like he makes the most sense being in wwe right now as opposed to any other time and you know famously in the in the slack i, was, I say famously as that people know about this but in the slack chat I've, I've said like you know up until probably like july of last year i was gonna have matt riddle as my number one wrestler of 2018 which, which is fucking insane yeah because like... he's a guy who hasn't made my top 50 up until that point you know with other people giving him like wrestler of the year multiple times but he had finally put it together and i was so bummed to see him disappear but now that he's shown back up in nxt and continues to have these high quality output it's like oh shit like that it didn't stop it hasn't it isn't dead like he is still in the path where he could be in the conversation for wrestler of the year again at some point um and not even like crazily probably relatively soon i mean his just everything is just done so well like he's such a just amazing all-around worker um the next match we get is uh maybe a waste of a lot of talent i would say honestly um not that the match is bad, but there's just so many good tag teams here, and they're just all stuck together in this ladder match um, that w- had its moments, I would say, but didn't necessarily ever hit like a top tevel, top tier level. Um, I mentioned it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got nothing to say about this match. Like, yeah, I talked about it last week. Like, there, like there's nutty bumps, but right. Yeah. I talked about it last week with the ladder match at the WrestleMania being that moment where I was like, "This isn't wrestling," and this is in that same vein where it's just like, "This is not." what I watch wrestling for, you know, and it's just, there's just too much over the top, but we follow that up with something that I think can't argue with is definitely wrestling, wrestling for wrestling's sake. Two guys who are very good. One guy who I think is probably going to end up in that conversation of, uh, unsung heroes of the history of wrestling, maybe not ending up in the conversation of all time greats, but a, you know, buddy Rose, maybe if you particularly really love them, um, you'll appreciate like the kind of unsung, underappreciated quality that they have in Tyler Breeze against a guy who, who fucking knows? You know what I mean? He could end up being the next rock. Like, you know, for as good as he is and for the, the skill that he's shown as a prodigy for so young on top of his charisma and everything else um, in the dream, the Velveteen dream, I mean, we could be talking about him in a few years as an all-timer, but these two guys did not disappoint um, in what you would expect Dream, I I still don't like Dream. Like <laughs> I gotta be honest here, I still I still don't like him. I still think it's very weird the people that like him. I I said before that it's like liking Velveteen Dream, but then also hating the Young Bucks from 2014 2015 is the strangest fucking thing to me, cause it's pretty much the same level of parody act but one gets a lot of praise in WWE and all that stuff and I'm not even saying that Dream is bad I think Dream is good I think you should probably take your time with Dream because he's 20 years old but I think my issue with more people just going completely crazy over him but as far as this match it's fine I think it's probably the weakest Dream match that there's been a few years that's I mean that's Um, that's fair I again like I was you know when I 
mentioned, or when I set it up, it's just like, I think that he has the potential to be a transcendent star. That's not to say that it's knock out of the park. And when you say take your time because he's only 20, I think that's basically implying the same thing that I mean by that, which is that I can see it there, but it's not, nothing is certain. You know what I mean? And he can always fall off. He's not a can't miss prospect, especially at his age. But I just think he's got all the pieces. And then I, I, I can definitely get into, or I can buy into what you say about that, but it's like also I'm someone who like you know I've liked the Young Bucks for a very long time. You know, yeah, like, that's me, the thing. Like, yeah, like like I, like I like the consistency there. Like you love the Young Bucks, I know that. You also like Dream, so that checks out for me. When it's like, oh yeah, like Velveteen Dream is the, is fucking great because he does Hulk Hogan spots. Then it's like, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, right. like weren't you also rallying against the Young Bucks in 2014, 2015? So, like, it's just a little weird to me from that front. But, no, Dream, I've liked most of his takeover matches. And I think the only one that I didn't like was the Ono match. But from Black to Ricochet to Ciampa to this one, they've all been varying levels of good. Mm-hmm. I think this is probably the least of that bunch I just mentioned. It's not. It was not as bad as the Ono match. Even in the Ono, even in the Ono match, it isn't even bad. It's like that was sloppy. Th- I mean, there were yeah, sloppy, a few blown spot spots and all that. But I'd probably put it maybe above the Ono match, but then and then it's below everything else for Dream. Yeah, and I think even that Ono match, I think is it's bad in that there was some blown spots, but the match itself, I think, was pretty good. The story was the story came the story was good yeah. the knockout tease was really good like there's a lot of stuff to love about that yeah. match it was just that they 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 were being a little bit overly kind of um, ambitious I guess would be the best way to describe it. Dream Dream does too much and I think I think it also comes down to the fact that they also don't know what they want Dream to be yet right do they want Dream do they want Dream to be this cheating heel is he a valiant baby face is like like i don't think they even know what dream is yet i think it really just goes into the whole gimmick of the velveteen dream velveteen dream is an experience and like you can't pinpoint exactly what the dream is and that ambiguity may be good for some people but i would like there to be something a little bit more clear on what the direction of dream well even the ambiguous thing i think i as you mentioned that it made me think of something and it is kind of a great point that you made there which is that like if you lean into being ambiguous as his gimmick and the story that you're telling then it works but they don't lean into it even like they that's not that's like kind of subtle in the sense that like you have to kind of tell yourself that story and it's not you know, set up and told to you by what's with, happening. With Dream, it's like, it's like he's he's a baby face one week and then he's a face and then he's a heel yeah. the next. Like, there's nothing ambiguous about him. Right. It's, like, very clear what they're doing. It's it's one of the things I've said about Bobby Fish, why I think that Bobby Fish is probably, like, an all-time great tweener that people don't appreciate, is that, like, Bobby Fish doesn't really change his gimmick. He just changes, like, kind of his heel-face dynamic based on what he's doing. But he's always, like, very consistently Bobby Fish. And I think that's something that, like, a lot more people need to understand if they're going to do that. But Dream feels like also that they're not committed to it. It feels like the issue with Dream is that they're just kind of back and forth what they feel like doing in the moment. They just do it instead of having a cohesive narrative for the character. Mm. So I think I think that's it on Dream versus oh, Breeze. Yeah. I, think, I, think, I think a lot of us, I think mainly me and you mainly, 
we always liked Breeze, but we were going to a point where, like, you know, like the magic is gone. You can't really just bring him back to NXT and expect that to be captured right. or expect to, expect people to be invested. I think that's asking a lot of people. And the match is fine. Just I think that's where, where we both wind up being on. Right. It. And I do. And I do think that Breeze can end up being an all timer comparatively to like a Buddy Rose where he's like a. And I think that some people might think that it, see that as blasphemy because they think of Buddy Rose as an all time great. But I think of him as an all-time. But, but we got, we got, we we, we got to think of like Buddy Rhodes, like largely, like yeah. what his perception is, right? Exactly. Not like not not how a lot of us that may have frequented it, uh, DVD, VR, PWO, or certain sections on Twitter think of Buddy Rose. Like Buddy Rose, comparatively, is like he's not that big of a name, right? He's yeah. I think that Breeze is a guy that the the in the arc of history, people will appreciate how good he really was secretly, kind of behind the scenes or you know small like kind of you know minute detail stuff but unfortunately we'll never really probably get his due as a top level guy and you know that's how it goes sometimes the next match i think is between two people who one has probably already gotten their due and is kind of in their back half of their career the other one is theoretically still just starting their career but may never get their spot from unfortunately being overshadowed by a more popular friend uh we get Shayna baszler versus io shirai i mean it feels like Shayna Baszler's matches, and we'll get into it in the main event, is even a worse version of this with Johnny Gargano, but her matches in NXT continue to be diminishing returns. I I still think that she's phenomenal, and I think she's still probably one of the best heels in wrestling, but you just get less and, for me at least, get less and less out of seeing essentially the same storylines over and over again. Meanwhile, I do think that she is phenomenal. I just, she feels so in stasis and has no build and isn't going anywhere that it's hard for me to care. Um, she's amazing as a dominant heel, for sure. Um, the arm work throughout this was fantastic. Um, the selling with with Shirai's selling was great. But it's it's always so difficult for me to give a fuck about whoever Shayna is wrestling and how good their selling is because Shayna makes everything look so believable that it doesn't matter how good her opponent is at selling. You're going to buy into what's happening. Um, but yeah, I think that the unfortunately the real story of this match is just that Shayna needs to leave NXT now. Like they need to be doing something with her on the main roster because she's too good to just feel like she's just trapped on the treadmill. You know what I mean? It's not even like a, it's not even like a too good thing. It's like there's not like you like this. This is the same problem that we had um, nearing the end of the Oscar reign, and it's you haven't done a good job building up other people and with the people that they have in this women's division right now this shouldn't be a problem right so think about what like what oscar had when she was still there what she have nikki cross and the iconics and then and, ember, and moon. Then ember moon is there yeah. and ember moon gets there but like like that's what you have there is like a nikki cross and the iconics and nikki cross is good she worked that gimmick at the time really well for what was asked of her and then you have Billy Kay and Peyton Royce that are being built up, and that is a hard task. Compare that to what Shayna has had, or at least has had on the roster with the likes of Mia Yim, Dakota Kai, Candice LeRae, um, Bianca Belair, Io Shirai, Kyrie Hojo. There's no excuse as to why, like, so like no one in this division feels ready yet because they have so many people that are great and can feel like viable threats, but they just haven't done it yet. And 
I get it. Like the whole heel champ finally gets their come up come up its thing and all that. It, it works out fine in theory, but you need to make people believe in someone. And the problem is that they make you believe in somebody and then they go and lose again. You believe in Bianca Belair and then she goes and loses. And you believe in Io Shirai and then she goes and loses. And that's fine sometimes, but you can't do that in every single title defense. Because then you get the Trevor Lee problem. Where you have so many people that came through the, that came through the pike and they feel like credible challengers. And then it's like, oh yeah, Trevor, Trevor Lee beats them. And these are, these are good matches. I have a problem with I ha, I do have a problem with Shayna's match structure that I'll get into in a second, but you can't just keep having these people lose the same way every single time because people are gonna stop caring. Yeah, and they, we're to the point where people just don't care anymore. But what's the issue? I I'd like to know what the issue with the structure is, honestly, because to me I think that her structure is it works really well for who she is and what she does. I, I get that it's repetitive. Right. No, that, that's what I was going to get to. It was like, it works for me because I enjoy what she does. But if I'm going to look at it from like a completely objective standpoint, it's like, how many times are you going to care when she does the exact same transition spot in every title defense, every match with the stomping on the arm and taking off the headband and all that stuff? Because she never places it. She never places it differently. She never like does it towards the end of the match. You can always predict and know when that stomp is coming, when the control is coming, and all that. And it's she's good at it. She's extremely good at it. But when you're on top and on in all these prominent spots for so long, I do want you to change it up a little bit. And it feels like Shayna just hasn't done that. Maybe that's the directive she's given to have all these matches be like super similar to each other and um, structured in similar ways. I don't know, but I, I I think I would have less issue with it if she placed her spots differently sometimes, which it just feels like we don't ever get to see that with her. Yeah, and I can definitely see that as you put it that way. It's kind of, it's funny because I think that comparatively, probably the best kind of anal- analogous kind of champion historically in WWE to her would probably be like a Bret Hart style match. And he also mm. got a lot of flack for being in wwe of course um he got a lot of flack for being you know repetitive and formulaic and and i think part of it is is that having a style like this that is honestly more meant for a more smart kind of real sports based setting is really difficult to then dumb down to try to do kind of the paint by numbers five moves of doom style um to where it does become really glaring and you know of course she also does the Bret Hart spot of like the the sleeper hold flip over pin, but she does that shit in every fucking match now. It's like it's that's part everybody, of her that's everybody's five, hope yeah. spot. Like that that has been the Shayna hope spot ever since she's come to NXT. Yeah, I mean, I like, it's it's honestly part of her five moves of doom. Even though it's the opponent doing it to her, it's like part of the setup to her finish. It feels that way. And that, that's like that's my frustration here. Is like I know Shayna is great. And she's really good at what she does. But how many times am I going to keep watching her do the exact same spots in the exact same way with the exact same consequences? Oh, yeah, someone flips over into uh, into the sleeper hold, but then she flips them back over. Or, oh, someone went for a bridging pin, and then, wow, Shayna catches them. Like, it's so... 
repetitive and re- repetition isn't bad i think me and you're both in the camp where we don't think repetition is a bad thing but when you're someone that's in as prominent a spot as Shayna, and when you're in that position you have another duty of helping to make other people come across as uh credible or as good in your matches or as people that could uh have a chance of taking you down when you keep having the exact same match with every person it it doesn't really it doesn't really help right and that's and i mean to be fair to you know or to be honest about Shayna overall it's like she was repetitive on the indies even before she was nxt i mean the only difference was is that the stuff that she would do kind of in between the you know spots that you would come to expect from her would be a little bit more real because it felt a lot more shooty and just kind of like transitions with real rolling style grappling stuff and then she would get into her like signature spots that you would see repeatedly in all of her matches so she definitely seems to i can't say that it's necessarily 100 percent her or that it is you know wwe or anything but she has seemed to have that inclination to go to being like you know stuff that she's very familiar with repeatedly because it's kind of easy for her in the moment to just have stuff in her back pocket that she knows to go to um and she does that here again and it works you know it works it works and i think that it's not necessarily a a terrible flaw we both said it i mean you know it makes sense and i think that one thing that people overlook when they like make you know pick apart parts of wrestling for stuff like repetitive nature is that like yeah it's repetitive but also like you know real sports are repetitive too there's like you know we got the world you know or like baseball kind of season going on right now um and it isn't like you know just one time a batter decides to go up to the mound and and stick the baseball bat up his ass instead of swinging with his hands just randomly because he wants to be different he always swings the bat the same fucking way you know what i mean like there's repetitive things in sports also like real sports so to say Mm. like someone's too repetitive in wrestling it's kind of like well would you not go to the same stuff that you do all the time because it works like it's I don't know. It's it's this weird disconnect that people sometimes have with wrestling and real sports. I, I, th- I think I think it's like with wrestling, you're like, okay, why doesn't someone get smarter here? Like if Shayna has done this exact same arm stomp to people for two years, uh, why I, I haven't seen someone be like, you know what? Maybe I don't let Shayna take this arm. And you know what? Maybe that's like something that's easier said than done when it comes to structuring a match. Yeah. Like how to like completely like completely uh write off or completely like try to like counter this spot and nullify it but i feel like that's probably an interesting way to go about it because that is shana's spot and we haven't seen any sort of right uh challenge made to it and that's all i'm like that's all i'm asking for here like some someone may get may get out of it but I, like more than like the carafuda clutch i'd love to see someone just completely nullify that arm stomp spot right and i get where you're coming from on there but it's also like to to go back to you know, shoot athletes and someone that I mentioned kind of with Rousey and her and their familiarity. It's kind of like when Rousey was on her hot streak in in UFC, it's like, well, why don't you just not let Ronda Rousey get you in an arm bar? You know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) so there is that like argument that's like, I get where you're coming from, but it's also like, you know, you can't necessarily always make that argument even in shoot, you know, in a shoot setting. Hmm. So, uh, so yeah. So I guess, I guess we can move on to Gargano to the main event, Scully, to the, huh? your match of the year so far, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and they repeated after having just a, a amazing outing last time at, at Takeover New York. Um, I liked this match, and I get where you're coming from and liking it more than the other match. But 
I also am I just I'm fucking done with Gargano for sure. Um, yeah, Adam Cole yeah. is good, but I think unfortunately the worst parts of Cole come out in WWE while other people seem to think that like the best parts of him are coming out now, which is like really annoying for me. Um, stuff in here, there was a lot of stuff in here that was really fucking annoying. Uh, burning hammer on the knee is just no bueno for me. Unfortunately, I think that that's just not allowed, um, at all. Okay. All right. All right. So do you, would you rather see a burning hammer on the knee or the backwards GTS? Uh, um, backwards GTS. Really? You go to Cheech. Um, yeah. I prefer the one. The yeah. Did you ever see the one that I'm pretty sure? Pretty sure you like the one where uh, Kento tried to do it to date. Um, yeah, tried to do it to it uh, Davey. Royally. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good one. Um, yeah. No, I'd rather that. Honestly, at least somewhat makes sense. I don't. I don't know. But, but, burning but hammer, the burning hammer onto the knee. But the burning hammer onto the knee like looks good though. Like yeah, when he did it. Like, it actually looked like it. Like. Like we're gonna like wreck the dude's face. Like I just it, GTS in the back of the head always looks like shit. I just honestly, like I said, go to Cheech. I, Cheech is the only person I've ever seen who did that version of the go to sleep and it worked. Um, but I also think mm. that he did a cutthroat version of it where he kind of did. Either way, we don't need to get into this right now. Um, it was like a ripcord kind of variation of it. Either way, um, my issue is just that that should be a finisher. Honestly, just because of paying homage to the burning hammer, I don't like people ever using a burning hammer for for a tease oh yeah we definitely, we definitely need more burning we definitely need more burning hammer dialogue yeah i'm not gonna get into that too deep here but i just it pisses me off to no end um there was some cool stuff you know what i did like the figure four kind of transition with the arm ringer i thought that that was a really smart and a good way to play off of dueling limb work that you've never i've never seen before and i was like god that's kind of cool you talk about like you know shana not coming up with something new and interesting that was new and interesting so that's the thing where while Gargano and Cole, for that matter, can be over the top and too cute by, you know, you know, a degree that annoys me, there is sometimes where that magic comes out where it's something that you've never seen before and you'll probably never see again. Um, unless someone's just, like, directly copying it, like, that's really impressive. Um, I can't argue with Gargano's selling, honestly. Um, I think... He's probably one of the most immaculate sellers overall. Um, he can be a little bit hammy at times, but um, it's really only glaring every now and then. And then otherwise, you just I, to me, I just don't even notice it other than just really good selling work that he does. Um, my biggest issue, honestly, with the match is just Cole winning the title here um, when it really felt like if you were going to put the title on him, you might as well have done it in the first matchup. Um, but yeah, but but no. Okay, but, get into but it. This go, is what, go overall. Give me just the, give me everything. So, so this is why I had the problem with the New York match. Is theoretically, I think this is the first match these two were gonna have. Okay. This should have been the this should have been the first match. Right. Because like because I think I imagine Champa would have moved on by now, and then you would have had Johnny go into this this one and lose his first defense. Blah 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 blah. I think that all got fucked up when Champa got hurt. So we had the New York match, which is pretty effect, which is pretty effectively them trying to work this match as if Adam Cole was Tommaso Champa, which we all know it isn't true. We all know Jenny Gargano when Adam Cole up to that point had no actual history with each other, and that trying to plug him into this equation, it just it's not real. It's not authentic. It doesn't fit. 
in trying to put, paint this as this great mountain for Johnny to climb with this guy that he has no history with, you know, it's completely phony. And sometimes I can excuse that. I'm not the most critical person in the world when it comes to, when it comes to wrestling or like my negativity in wrestling. But that one pissed me off because it felt so forced and so inorganic and so um, insincere. But you know that that was meant to be Champa, and I wouldn't and I wasn't going to kill them for that. Now we get here for to this match, and now this feels a little bit more earned. Yes, it goes really fucking long. Yes, there's a lot of kickouts. Yes, there's a lot of super kicks. Yes, there's a lot of stuff that people might eye roll at as super indie rific, like Adam Cole doing the Panama City Destroyer on the house on the outside, like. All that stuff should have done it on the apron. St- <laughs> All that stuff is still present in there in this match, but for me, it's just more earned because now you have an actual story with each other and actual history to play off of. And yeah, they're they're playing into some of my nerd bait sensibilities with really good arm arm and knee work, um, respectively, and great selling, especially from Gargano. Cole sort of drops it because Gargano stops work focusing on his arm, but that's a that sort of stuff doesn't bother me. But I really enjoyed the offense both of these guys did here. A lot of the a lot of the uh, crazy sequences worked for me. We've seen the super kick spot before, like the tope that gets caught to a super kick spot before. Like that's nothing new, but that one looked especially great, and it really worked for me just because this one at least felt organic or felt like. This is what these two should be doing compared to, oh, Johnny Gargano versus Tommaso Ciampa fill-in. And we're still going to go 40 minutes because that was what Tommaso Ciampa was supposed to be doing too. And the work was not bad in the first Gargano-Cole match, but it was everything else surrounding it that left such a bad taste in my mouth. I think here and actually fitting for the time and place, these two putting in really good performances, some neat, clever stuff. One of my favorite spot in the match is when Adam Cole gets back in the ring and Johnny Gargano's on the outside and he's sort of in and Cat Cole's like motioning toward the back for the rest of the Undisputed Era to come out and playing off the first match when Undisputed Era came out and sort of took, started beating on Johnny. Johnny gets paranoid, Johnny gets worried and he starts to rush back into the ring not realizing that was all a ploy by Adam Cole to get some sort of advantage on him and hits that... uh rope hung pile driver DDT Wish thing or whatever yeah and that was it's, that was my favorite spot of the match I thought that was a really clever way to do some of that stuff and look I, I get it if people don't like this one I also think if you don't like this one you should probably hate New York but that's just me yeah. but yeah I, I really enjoyed this just for the fact that it felt a little bit more earned this time if I'm perfectly honest they had a TV match that I thought was better um Mm. Then what was it last year? Uh, it may have been late last year or early this year, and it was setting up into Gargano getting the title, the first title shot, um, which may have been against even um, Almas. So yeah, it would have probably been last year. Um, that said, I mean, I get where you're coming from, and I couldn't imagine saying that you hated this match but loved the New York match. Like that would be insane to me. Um, I do know that you're a sucker for a one-leg bridge. What did you think about the cross-leg Gargano escape? That had to... See, that definitely got a quarter of a star okay. raise for me. Perfect. 
you know, I, no, I definitely respect anyone that does anything on one leg. Uh, there's some times where I can't respect it. Say if say if Walter does it, I can't respect it. It's, as I mean, Walter is a coward. It's not allowed. Not allowed to enjoy yeah, any not, Walter. You know, not not allowed to. But yeah, I really I, like that was something where I thought it was clever. I've never yeah. seen that before, and I do put I do put stock into that. And Johnny Gargano and Adam Cole, at their best, are really creative guys. And I thought that was a super creative spot. So I really enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah, and I think that there was some indie riffickness. There was some melodrama. But I think they executed everything here pretty well for what they were doing. Um, I think Johnny Gargano throws one of the worst super kicks ever. And it sucks because and, it's such a big part of his offense. And you know and, and like you know why it's bad? And it's not because like like his his foot like hooks when he does it. Am I the only one that no, sees that? Yeah, <laughs> like, he does the Marafuji hooking kick thing and he's yeah, also, like he is, I've, he is. I've said it before but he's too short for it really. Uh, so he throws the super kick and a lot of times it barely looks like his foot can reach the person's face depending on how tall they are. And then on the flip side, Adam Cole throws like a great one. Yeah. Like one of my one of my favorite super kick anyone's ever thrown. But he throws the lazy so- one. I don't know if you've ever seen. I think that there was one time I remember Kevin Nash throwing a super kick. Um, and it's just this really lazy kind of puts his foot out there, and Cole kind of is similar, but it looks better. Yeah, he puts his he, he puts his foot out there, but I guess because Cole's bigger, right? And, and I think Cole is, has always been, always had really great timing, right? That's what works so, for him is his timing. Cole is impeccable when it comes hmm. to his timing for sure. Right. So, like, yeah, Cole doesn't like really just like thrust or put any effort into pushing his pushing or driving his foot but because he has such a great timing and because he's a bigger guy it looks a lot better and it's just a small noticeable thing when you have people that are in there doing this mirror match stuff and they're trading super kick spots so much right but yeah to me like when i say cole's is a lazy version of super kick it's like to me i always kind of look at the pinnacle the best like put the most effort super kick is the the Lance Storm super kick where like he throws it yeah Lance Storm yeah Lance Storm like Shelton Benjamin yes the post where like the the opposite the opposite arm posts on the mat in the kick like you're just like full extension of your entire body and everything Mm. to that point and you're just like really and Cole does not come anywhere close to even barely moving he just puts the (laughs) foot out there he doesn't really move and contort his whole. It's a body. real Shawn, It's a it's a real Shawn Michael super. That's kick. for sure. Yeah, but yeah. So so that's the thing. But like you said, the 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 timing, the the placement, the the size, the impact that you believe is coming behind it works, um, in a way. And then yeah, Gargano is just. I mean, it's just, it's dog shit, and it's so so much of what he does is so, it's a lot of super kicks now in his matches, but. Again, these are we talked about two guys who were really inventive. There was stuff here that was like first time shit you've never seen before. Really cool trades back and forth, ideas that like are just like very unique and and executed super well by two guys who are probably in the you know the top of their game, top of the craft. That 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 bicycle um that bicycle kick spot where Cole was doing like these really awesome looking bicycle kicks to the back of Gar- to the back of Gargano's yes. head and then Gargano bounces off the ropes with that lariat like that's fucking great like, like right. for all the uh stuff that people might not like like the super kick spot or the destroy, destroy on the floor there's something like that where it's like you know like how can you dislike that because that's some really creative shit there right and even I mean even the, the the spot that I called out the the burning hammer on the knee thing it's like while it annoys me because of the burning hammer aspect. It also like weirdly it makes sense. Like... It looks great, and it weirdly makes sense because it plays off of Adam, a move that Adam Cole does. It's like a version of the last shot, or I guess I don't even know if he 
Yushigiroshi, yeah, yeah, but like he, I, which, which more, which more Vanilla really, more Vanilla really wanted to say so oh, badly. Oh no, actually no. Is he, he called he called everything you, you, yes, Yushigiroshi. Yes, he, he does love that move. But no, not the Yushigiroshi, but the um the Adam Cole does the brainbuster on the knee, which is yeah. Is that the Yushigiroshi? I thought the Yushigiroshi is the um Death Valley Driver. No, the Yushigiroshi, yeah, the Yushigiroshi is the fireman's carry on yeah, the knee. Yeah. But I think Moro called the, called it the, called the um. The uh, the brainbuster on the knee. Yes. The Yushigiroshi. Okay. Yeah, but like, w- which is why I was laughing about it. But Adam Cole does the brainbuster on the knee, so then him doing the 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 burning hammer on the knee kind of plays off of that. It's like a super version of a move that he regularly does. So I can kind of like forgive it for that. But it is. It's like it's upping the ante for a big situation. And if this was, I think that part of it too is that in a vacuum, I could pro- I would probably like this match more without the first match but because the first match felt like you said so forced and so shoehorned it hurts the the just my perception of this in a lot of ways unfortunately because i can't just pretend like the drama is just here because like we're pretending like the other match was still cole versus or was still gargano versus champa because it wasn't the first match was gargano versus versus Cole and it felt like if you were going to do this anyways you might as well have had Cole win the first match I don't know that's and that's just again that's booking and that's unfortunate because of the injuries but I think they could have honestly they could have stuck anybody in there and looking back on it now it's like maybe this is like stupid but I think you could have put like Lars Sullivan in the Adam Cole position for the other match and it would have made more sense right now Mm. you know what I mean that you would come out of it with like Gargano got a big win over a monster, then he goes on to lose to Adam Cole. And I think that it would have worked better than having him beat Adam Cole and then turn around and lose to him on the next show. That's just, again, that's just like in the moment, what the fuck are you going to do? I understand. But that's just like something that takes away from my ability to appreciate this match on its own merit. So, that's like, I guess, like, the assumption is the next title program is going to be Adam Cole versus Matt Riddle. I mean, I mean at least I hope so. I, I don't want another yeah. Adam Cole versus Johnny Gargano match, but with the assumption being it's Adam Cole versus Matt Riddle, are you into that? Yeah. Are you? Yeah, definitely. Okay. I think that they don't have good chemistry with each other. They've only ever seen them have bad matches with each other, but they also have both been really impressive in NXT. I thought that the way that they booked this, where they kind of sandwiched the show with both guys getting wins in the opener and the closer in, in two really high-quality matches is interesting and intriguing and a great way to like kind of just secretly kind of nod to where you're going next. So, yeah, I think I'm interested in it. Are you Are you interested in that or no? A, l- a little bit hesitant, just because you're right. Like, they've never really been that good together. But Riddle's been fantastic in NXT and... There's enough people there that may be able to dress that match up as to where they aren't just going out there doing fuck all for 30 minutes. So I don't know. I'm a little hesitant, but I, I think it can be good with the right uh, thought behind it. And it's exactly what I expect. Um, but, you know, it's just like this podcast where, you know, with the right thought behind it, it can be good. Unfortunately, maybe this week wasn't the, uh, there wasn't enough thought behind it. Um, no, I'm just, I'm kidding. But, uh, I think I'm kind of that's everything I have to say. Quentin, do you have any final thoughts or whatever? Or what do you think? Uh, no, I'm good. I think we're next time we're here, we're probably going to talk about Dominion, which means I got to fucking watch Okada versus Jericho. Yeah. That's going to be a lot. I, I was, I, I, I watched like 
all of the show up until Okada versus Jericho because I just I was tired. I had to be at work at um at one, and I, I was trying to get a little workout in too. So I had to, I had to go to bed. I got like five and a half six hours of sleep, and I just couldn't do Okada versus Jericho. But I was a coward, and I have to pay for my sins and I have to go in there and watch that at some point before we record yeah well I mean hey you don't have to but the trade off will be that if you don't watch that I will make you watch something that has violences forever on it so that is that is a hard bargain yeah I mean if you want to watch SUP or or action wrestling then that'll be the uh, the unfortunate or actually you know what you don't even deserve that I'll look for like some random shitty Alabama indie that's being run in a uh, bingo hall or something that has a you're gonna gonna revive the alabama doink man yes exactly but it'll be like kevin koo versus uh i don't know maybe um one of the guys from uh roscoe eats lisa in a (laughs) no ropes um fans bring the cracker barrel match kevin koo versus someone from like suicide spring squad yes exactly um that'll be that'll that's your trade-off so dominion or that and that's your that's your choice but uh I guess I don't know. Do you want to close out with plugs or anything? Do you care about that? I don't really give a shit. Follow me on Twitter, whatever. I don't know. Um, I think I think the entire time we've done this, we've never plugged our Twitter. So, for some reason, if you're listening to this and you don't follow me on Twitter already, which would be strange to me, you can follow me on Twitter at qt underscore booty. Perfect. Follow me on Twitter at lucha undead. Still, at least for another week. Um, Bye. We both like apple cider, but your hair is mine.